Take a Bible, please, and turn to page 972. If you're picking up one of the Bibles on a chair around you, 972, we're going to read from the book of Galatians, letter of the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're continuing a series in Galatians, picking up in this passage. Let's listen carefully to God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Again, our Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we thank you that You have not left us alone in this world. You show us your power and your majesty and all the things that you have made. Not a beautiful day like this when the birds sing and the sun shines. We rejoice in that. And we might even take time out of our busy lives to sit on the back porch and think about what it tells us. Yet, again, as we come to you, we thank you that you gave us even more clear instruction than that so that we might know you as you truly are, not just as we would make you up in our minds. We, we would know you, and that is in the scriptures. And We ask that today, as we look into your word, you would open our minds to understand what it says, and you would move our hearts to obey it. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's well known that Americans are very wary of authoritative leadership, We value personal freedom and autonomy above almost anything else in life. And and you may not know this, but having been in Europe a lot and worked with different people, one of the things that Europeans often identify with America, it's like if you thought of the American image abroad, it is the cowboy They often speak of cowboys, and they're thinking of the man who roams the western plains alone, caring for his flock, and no one's there to tell him what to do and when to do it and where to go and when to be there. And that's how Americans are. We call our presidents by their first names. 
or even worse sometimes by their last names as though they were members of our softball team. And what's true for us in our American character and the way we think about government is true as well when we, we think about the church. It's um, true in our experience of the Christian faith. We're very cautious of anyone who exerts authority in the church, and often we are right in doing that because of the many things that have been exerted that are wrong. But, but I remember once using an illustration, I used it kind of Ill, innocently to make a point, and it backfired at least with one person. It was an illustration about a church in Korea, and this was maybe 20, 25 years ago. It, at that time, was the largest church in the world. It had over 600,000 members in Seoul, Korea. It it had this huge building on an island, and uh, people had to make their way there. They had 10 services every Sunday and multiple services other days throughout the week, and the members of the church were told what service they were allowed to come to so that they didn't overcrowd, and everybody was divided down into groups of 10 that multiplied regularly, and it's all, you know, something that we wouldn't do, but my illustration was uh, the pastor shortly before that, the church needed to buy a building that was near their property, and it cost a million dollars, and so he got up and he said, uh, 100 of our families need to give $10,000 each this week so that we can buy this building. By Thursday, you need to do it. And it wasn't like I'm suggesting this if you feel moved by God. It was like, here's what you have to do. And um, I, I was using it simply to say that, boy, people think of authority in a lot of different ways in the world. I wasn't saying I would be comfortable with that or that I was suggesting that we do that in any way, but a person who was kind of new to the church stopped coming. And I noticed that a few weeks later and spoke to his friend who had brought him, and he said, well, my friend said he wasn't comfortable going to a church where that's the kind of leadership there is. And, and you know, I guess my only, uh, my, my only comfort was that no one else seemed to understand it that way. At least they never told me or, you know, they didn't leave. But people in America are very wary of authoritative leadership, often for very good reasons. But this morning I want to ask, what what is true authority in the church, spiritually? Where does it come from? Who authorizes people to minister? If you're here this morning for the first time, what should be the reason that you would use to either choose to trust what I'm about to say or not trust it? Um, Is it because of the persuasiveness of my speech or because I dress a certain way or speak a a certain way? If you're looking for a church and you're going to different ones, what is the basis on which you're going to make a decision as to which one to root yourself in as a church family? And and let me add to that. In in a few years, within a few years, this church family is going to have to choose another lead pastor. And I'm not bringing that up because I'm planning to leave tomorrow or my, my plans are impending or anything like that. It's just the obvious reality that even though I've been here for 33 years... I'm not going to last forever. And I did a wedding yesterday, and it was great. And I had someone afterwards who said to me, essentially, oh, I just love that wedding, and I hope you're still around when, when I get married. You know? And I, I went home kind of feeling good, like, oh, you know, somebody who likes me and, and, and all of that. But the other side of that I happen to know is, if I stay long enough, people will be thinking, I'm afraid the old guy's going to not die. Like he's going to be here forever. and It just doesn't work that way. What criteria, if you're a covenant member of this church, what criteria are you going to use to make a decision on who is going to take my place in the primary preaching and teaching and leadership role of this church? Well, this passage helps to answer that question. 
What I'd like to do is just kind of put the passage in context, take it apart, and then make a simple application. As Paul, my associate, pointed out last week when he looked at the previous paragraph, this little section of the letter really begins in chapter 1 and verse 11. And everything that follows through the end of chapter 2 is just an extended argument or uh, extended reasoning that's based on the point that he makes in verse 11 and verse 12. So look at that if you have a Bible. Turn back one page. Chapter 1, verse 11. Paul the Apostle said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was accused of getting his authority to preach from someone else, particularly from the leaders in Jerusalem. Paul was not a follower of Jesus during his earthly life. In fact, he opposed him. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul, in a miraculous way that he refers through here, by the words, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, was confronted by Jesus himself, the risen Jesus now in heaven, confronted in some kind of vision, experience, and and he was suddenly converted from his opposition to Christ to adherence to him and following him in an active way. But he was accused of having uh, come to this through other people who knew Jesus in his flesh during the days of his life. And so what Paul asserts right up front here is, listen, Jesus is the source of my message. No human being uh, told me the message, explained it to me. I received it from Jesus. And no human authorities authorized me to do it. It doesn't have a human origin. It doesn't depend on human authority. He says, because my conversion was direct, instantaneous, unique, It's not going to be repeated. It's not intended to be repeated. It was direct from Jesus. And then what follows is an extended explanation of what he means by that. First, he says, as Paul pointed out last week, that he didn't even go and see anyone in Jerusalem for three years. It says he went into Arabia. Probably means what is present Iraq. uh, called Nabatea in the Roman Empire. And he went away, and we don't even know what he did. He was alone in the desert, as far as we know, for three years. He says... So right after my conversion, I didn't even meet with anyone else. How could I get the gospel from them? Then he, he, he says um, that he, three years later, after his conversion, three years, he went up to Jerusalem. But the only person he met there was Peter. He was only there 15 days. And in the midst of all the activity of the church in Jerusalem, he didn't have enough time to gain any sort of uh, detailed understanding of the gospel. It wasn't that he went there after three years and Peter explained it to him. And then we pick up where I just read a few minutes ago in chapter 2, and he continues his argument. He says, right after my conversion, I went to Arabia. Three years later, I went to Jerusalem. I was only there 15 days. But then 14 years after my conversion, he means, 14 years later, I went up a second time to Jerusalem, and I went up with Barnabas. Now, Let me just kind of run through what the important points are that he makes here. First, he says, I went up, verse 2, because of a revelation. And that most likely refers to the fact that we read in Acts 13 and verse 1 that the Apostle Paul was called by the Spirit of God to go out and start churches, Paul and Barnabas, to go together and to start churches 
And, and it was an internal sense, this is what God wants me to do, that was then confirmed by the leaders of the church in Antioch to whom the Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Paul to the work to which I have already called them. So the call came to Paul and Barnabas, and then the leaders said, we're simply going to confirm that this is what you should do, go out and do it. And he says, I went up to Jerusalem because of this revelation, this call to missionary activity, and he he makes it clear then in verse 3 why it is he went up there. Uh, Verse 2, I went up because of revelation, I went up privately before those who seemed influential, the apostles and leaders in the church, in order to present the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to be sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, he wanted to be clear as to the nature of his gospel message, and what the thing that he set before them was, Is my gospel, the thing that has been revealed to me by Christ, is it the same thing that you received when Jesus taught you for three and a half years and you walked with him throughout Palestine and you saw him perform miracles, things that Paul never saw, is my gospel the same as the one that you received? Then he goes on and he says, um, but even Titus, verse 3, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, he's mentioning this because the people who opposed him were saying he just has a message that he gathered from other people, and he was sent out by the leaders in Jerusalem. And uh, he he, he says, "Um, that's not true. I received this gospel from Jesus. And one of the proofs that that's true is when I went to Jerusalem, Titus, they didn't force Titus to be circumcised. Now, that seems kind of odd to us, but let me explain why it's such an issue Many people think that there's like this huge contradiction in the Bible for this reason. In Acts chapter 16, later in Paul's life, he wants to take a young man with him on his second missionary journey named Timothy, a person who becomes an important leader in the church. But he was a very young man. He wanted to take him with him. And it says explicitly in Acts 16 that Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman. His father was a Greek, that is a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And Paul took Timothy and he had him circumcised Quote, because of the Jews. But then we read in this passage that here's another person named Titus. And when Titus was told, you need to be baptized, Paul said, absolutely not. And he wasn't compelled or forced to be circumcised. People say, well, there, there's this um, contradiction in the New Testament. And the answer is something very clear and simple. And it's, it's simply this, to be counted as a Jewish person in the New Testament and today, This is true right up to the present time. You have to have a Jewish mother. If your father is Jewish and your mother is a Gentile, you're considered a Gentile. Now, you can convert to Judaism, but you're not born as a Jewish person. Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman. And so he was considered a Jewish person, but he had never been circumcised. Paul wanted to take him, and in his ministry, he was starting in every city in the synagogue. And he'd go and he'd preach there. And to bring a Jewish man into the synagogue and present him as a Jewish person who had never taken the covenant sign would have been very unacceptable, would have put great question on the whole thing that he was going to say, so he had him circumcised. When we come to Titus, it's not the same case. Titus, we are told, was, this passage says, a Greek 
and it's made clear elsewhere, that his father was Jewish and his mother was a Gentile, so he was considered from ground zero a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And Paul is saying he didn't need to be circumcised because circumcision doesn't make a person acceptable to God. They're acceptable through Jesus Christ. He's not Jewish by birth. He doesn't need to have the covenant sign in order for people to accept him as, as he presents himself as a Jewish person and that kind of thing. So he's very adamant that he did this, verse 5. So to them, these opposers who said he has to be circumcised, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, those who were demanding circumcision were trying to change his message. They were trying to say, okay, believing in Jesus is good, but what you need to add to it if you want to be fully devoted to God, if you want God to acknowledge you, is you need to add circumcision, keeping the dietary rules and the festivals of the Old Testament. If you do that, belief in Jesus plus keeping the law, God will accept you. Paul said, no, it's faith in Christ plus nothing. And then he pointedly says that not only was this his message, but it was also the message of the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. He says in the middle of verse 6, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. And what that mean is, means is they didn't lay on him any other requirement. They said to him, as he explained to them, this is the gospel as God, Jesus has revealed it to me. They said that is exactly what Jesus taught us. Justification, acceptance with God through faith in Christ alone. And what the apostles did is they confirmed his message. And then finally, in verse 9, he, he says, not only did they confirm my message, but they recognized my ministry. Now, the passage says that they gave to me and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which is the idea of they shook our hand. And they said, we acknowledge that God has called you, as you believe, to go to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been sent primarily to the Jewish people, two different spheres of ministry, but the same gospel. Now, the passage is pretty clear. The apostles in Jerusalem didn't authorize their ministry. If anyone, humanly speaking, authorized it, it was more the leaders of the church in Antioch who sent them out. But even they weren't authorizing. They were just acknowledging what was already true. So um, what this passage tells us is it really answers the question of authority, where authority comes from. Authority comes from Jesus Christ and the gospel. Now, those two things go together. You can't separate them. And what I mean is this. A person could say, Jesus spoke to me and he told me to do thus and so. I have a couple of times in life spoken to people with mental illness who believe that Jesus has spoken to them and told them things. Or, in one case at least, a person who believes that he is Jesus. You know, I mean, that's too subjective to to simply say, well, Jesus told me something. But the fact is, the Jesus who revealed himself to Paul is recorded for us, an accurate record of who he was and what he did in the scriptures. So those two things go together. It's Jesus as he is revealed to us in the Bible, the things we are told about him, who he is, those, that's the source of authority. The only authority comes from the gospel. That, that, that's the only reason a person should listen to me is because I am 
um, explaining, teaching the gospel as it's recorded in the New Testament. Note how this is brought out in the passage. Again, he says in verse 2, I went up because of revelation, and um, I set before them, that is the leaders in Jerusalem, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to be sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, what did he bring to the apostles? What was his question? It was simply the gospel that I proclaim. That was the only issue. He wanted to know, am I preaching the same gospel you received from Jesus? The gospel of free acceptance with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the key issue. Everything else is secondary because the only authority Paul is saying that I have lies in the gospel message. So is my gospel accurate? And then he goes on and he says in verse 5, to them, these false teachers, we did not yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved or confirmed for you. What was he concerned for? He wasn't concerned for his reputation. He wasn't concerned for his success as a preacher. He was concerned that the truth of the gospel might be preserved intact, whole, complete, that what he was saying was accurate and right, because the only source of authority lies in the gospel message. So for Paul or for anyone else, to preach with any kind of authority means that he or she has to be announcing accurately the gospel message. And right there lies one of the most important distinctions between Roman Catholicism and biblical faith. And before I explain what I mean by that, I just need to note two things. First, it's difficult when you read through Galatians or teach through it not to make this point because it is a book that makes crystal clear some of the differences between the Roman Catholic faith and that which um, is what I would call biblical faith that came, it was recovered, I guess you'd say, during the Reformation and is taught in many non-Catholic churches. It's difficult not to speak of it because it makes it so, so uh, clear and I know that many people in this room either grew up in the Catholic Church or they, uh, you might have married, as I did, into a devout Catholic family. And so when you go to family gatherings, this becomes an issue. I mean, people ask, why don't you have your kids baptized? Or, or why don't you go to Mass? Or things like that. And so it's like it's just a real living issue. So let's think about it for a minute. And second, I want to say I'm not saying anything here because I have some particular dislike for Roman Catholics. In fact, I met my wife when we were 15, and uh, her father was one of the first people I ever met who was a very devout Catholic, Notre Dame graduate, who, who was serious about Christian faith. I mean, he was just serious about Christianity, and it's like it was a new thing to me. I went to the Catholic Church for three years. I took instruction uh, from Father John Foglio at St. John's Student Chapel at Michigan State University, and uh, I did not join the Catholic Church. But it's not because I have any particular dislike. It's because right at that point, after I took instruction, I was brought by God to understand the gospel as I'm about to explain it. Now, what I want to say is this is a passage that makes very clear one of the important differences between Roman Catholic faith and biblical faith. And it goes this way. In the Roman Catholic Church, as it's taught in the catechism and by the church, there are three sources of authority that kind of go together and intertwine. Those three sources are the scriptures, the holy tradition, 
And thirdly, the teaching magisterium of the church, which is actually a body of individuals, priests in Rome, who define in every generation the true faith. You put those three things together, scripture, tradition, and the teaching magisterium of the church, and that is authority. And um, on the other hand, the view of biblical faith is that only the first applies. Scripture is the only authority. Other things might be important in a confirmatory way at different times, but they don't carry any authority by themselves apart from Scripture. Now, we could talk for hours about that, but my point is this. This passage seems to underscore the view of biblical faith, that um, uh, the only authority is Scripture, the gospel, as it's presented in Scripture. I want you to note, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he mentions Peter, whom he calls Cephas by his Aramaic name one time in this passage, Peter... And um, James, the brother of Jesus, not an apostle, but the leading elder of the church in Jerusalem, and John, Peter and John forming the two of the most, uh, three most closest apostles to Jesus during his life, Peter having been given the leadership of the apostles uh, after Jesus' death, he, he says that those three people did not add anything to him. They laid no other requirements on him, and the passage is quite clear that they didn't even authorize his ministry. All they did was they accept, accepted what God had done. They acknowledged that he was called to go to the Gentiles, and they shook his hand and said, we're giving you this sphere. We're, we're acknowledging this is what God has called you to do. Our, our message is the same. Our strategies may be different, but the integrity of the law-free saving gospel is the only thing that really matters. And that means that the most important thing for you as an individual or for this church in terms of its covenant members is to understand and experience the gospel. That is the most important thing. That's the whole point of the reason that we meet together and worship like this. It's the whole reason we have small groups. It's it's, um, what we do when we do individual discipleship, or even when we as individuals open up the scriptures by ourselves and we read them and we pray. It's to understand and experience the gospel. It's why we lay this table regularly for the church on the first Sunday of the month and we celebrate communion. Is to portray in visible form the gospel to remind ourselves of what it is and also to fill out our understanding of that because, you see, the gospel can be explained and brief, but the whole Bible is the full explanation of the gospel. From beginning to end with all of the details, that's what the Bible is. It's the gospel. Now, the gospel, the good news, starts with the fact that you and I have fallen short We have worshipped things other than God. We have depreciated God in the way that we think. And in many ways, we've scorned him either with our minds or with our mouths or with our lives. And God's response to that is, at least in part, that he is firmly set against everything that rebels against him. In the Bible's words, he is angry with sin. But that's not his whole response. In addition to that response, the one that is more important is that God himself acts towards us. He has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And he's done that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's done that in order to reconcile us back to himself, bring us back into relationship. And it happens in a twofold movement. The first part of the movement is Christ dying on the cross in which he takes on himself 
our rebellion and our sinfulness. And he pays the penalty for that in our place. And the second part of the movement is when God gives to us the righteous character of Christ, his standing with God, his obedience and acceptance, acceptability to God. He gives that to us as a gift so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's acceptability to him and his perfection. And he deems us in Christ spotless and blameless. The most important thing for Christian people to understand and to experience is that message, that gospel, that by faith we possess all that Christ is and does for us. Some people have this idea, you know, I understood the gospel when I was six or seven or whatever, and, and, and now as I move on to Christian life, I can understand deeper truths. There are no deeper truths. The gospel is all there is. But there certainly is a greater way of understanding. I mean, it's like someone once uh, related the scriptures, the full message of the gospel, to the ocean. And the ocean is a place where a little child can dabble his feet in the shallows and can walk around and build sandcastles, and a grown man can drown in the depths of the ocean. And that's what the Bible, the scripture, is like. The message of Jesus. You can spend your whole life not just understanding, but understanding in a way that moves your heart. And the fact is, the more you understand the sovereign, free, transforming grace of God, the more your hearts are set on fire to serve him and to reflect his character in the way that you live. So that you, if you're dealing with a, someone who has done some work at your home, you're no longer thinking, uh, this guy's trying to rip me off. How can I you know, get him to pay the least amount that I can and, and trying to kind of deal with him that way? You think, I'm a representative of Christ, whether he knows it or not. How can I relate to him in a way that a representative of Christ ought to relate to him? You're in a position to serve God effectively when you experience his grace. Now, you may be a person for whom this message is new or it's newly clear in some way, as I've been speaking. I don't know. But um, Christian faith, you need to understand, is not about changing your life for the better, though it does result in that. But that's not what it's about. It's not about you changing your life for the better so that maybe in the end God will accept you. It's not even about, as many of us thought, you know, learning the Bible. Look, if I can learn more about the Bible and understand it, then if I learn enough, there'll be some point where God says, okay, you're really serious about this, so I'll be serious about you too, you know. That's not what the gospel is. It's not even as therapeutic kind of people kind of hazily think today, God accepts you, so you need to accept yourself, you know, kind of message. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about sin and grace. It's God's majestic significance in life, his eternal authority to rule life that you and I have spurned as we've gone through life by living our own ways and failing to acknowledge him and and failing to allow him to be all that he is in our life and to be reflected through us in our character. That's what it's about. And that God, because of that and all the ways that's shown in our lives, God sent his son to die in our place so that we might have this great transaction by faith in which the sins are taken by Christ on the cross and and his righteousness is transferred to us. And God invites you this morning to trust in Christ, the one who bore sins 
in your place so that he might give you Christ's righteousness. And I invite you to do that. Even here right now, I invite you to do that. The, the Spirit invites you. This table, in a sense, just looking at it invites you because it tells us of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. But many of us in this room come this morning knowing these basic facts already. And let me just remind you that while the gospel can be expressed in a few words, the full understanding experience of the gospel can never, never really be found. We can only make progress in that as we go through this life. As we have fellowship with people, as we come to the table, we can make progress in understanding it because the why and the what and the implications of the gospel can only be made clear over time as we wrestle it out in our own lives. And the table is one of the ways that he does that for us this morning. So let's ask him to teach and guide us. Our gracious God, as we come to you, we pray that even this morning you would, um, for those who belong to you and come to take of these elements, you would confirm within us the word of the gospel that there is forgiveness in Christ. You would drive that more deeply into our souls that we might feel that and want to live that out in relationship with other people. We offer you this in Jesus' name.